I'm going to begin by answering a question that's not the question we're going to look at, but there's a, a reason for it, and it's tied in with the question that we're going to look at. And first of all, it's a confession. I was preparing for this and sitting, writing something in my study, and I put on a couple of songs. I think one of these I hope we're going to sing at the end. Were we able to? Where's Mark? Are we going to sing? Yeah. This is it. See What a Morning. And it came on, and I was listening to it, and before I knew what was happening. Now, you have to remember, for those of you who are new here and don't know who I am, I'm extremely straight-laced Presbyterian, right? And before I knew what was happening, I was sitting in my chair, and I was leaning back, and I was doing the whole charismatic thing, and I thought, oh, I hope no one's looking. Oh, they'll come in. And it brought me back to a question that somebody had said to me, David, is it all right if we clap our hands? And if it's all right if we raise our hands? And I said, Mary, behave yourself. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> Mary'd do it anyway. So, and you know, I thought about it, and I thought, what? I thought, what a shame actually that you felt inhibited like that. Because I hate it when I go to a place and I'm told to do something. You know, if I'm told to a place, I go to a place and they say, "Clap your hands, David." I'm going like that because I don't know why. If you know, I, I hate the sort of group mentality, but I love it if people feel free enough. So, the answer to that question is yes. You want to clap your hands, raise your hands, go ahead. That's not a problem. And those of us who are a bit more reserved. Uh, we're, we can be happy in that as well. We can be happy in our reservations. But if anything would want you to cause to clap your hands or to raise your hands or whatever, it should be what we're going to look at just now. The other thing I thought about with this as regards that, actually, I thought was, when do I, when do I raise my hands and when do I clap my hands? And the only time I could honestly think of is at Dens Park when Dundee are winning, which is fairly rare. But I just thought, you know, we do that. We stand there and we just... You know, like, and, and you think, why will I do that for a bunch of men who are kicking around a bag of wind, and I wouldn't do it for Jesus? And it's, it's a question that's stuck in my mind, so um, feel free. But we're going to look at this, Christ, uh, Jesus' exaltation. So let's go on to the first question. This is question uh, 27, 28 of the Catechism, actually. Uh, I will read the question, and you can answer it. The answer is underneath in what does Christ's exaltation consist? Christ, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. That's Christ, beg your pardon. We're going to do question 27 first, Christ's humiliation, because the reason we're doing that is that last week I turned up without the stick, and you never got to say it. So we'll do Christ's humiliation first, then we'll go on to his exaltation. So in what did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in being born, and that in poor circumstances in being subject to God's law, in undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the curse of death on the cross, in being buried, and in continuing under the power of death for a time. Okay, and then let's go on to his exaltation. In what does Christ's exaltation consist? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending into heaven in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Okay, let's go on to the next one, Stephen, please. How can Christ be exalted? All right, here's, here's a problem, you see, because Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is God. How can He be any greater than that? How can you actually exalt Jesus Christ? I used to think that in terms of praising Jesus. When we praise Jesus or we exalt Jesus, how can you and I do that? How can you and I lift the name of Jesus higher? 
What does that involve? And, and it's not an easy question to answer. Well, there are two answers I'm going to give here just now. Uh, one is that Christ is exalted in His name. And this is, we're talking about the, the name of Jesus Christ, where the name of Jesus is held in high honor. Acts 19.17 says the name of Jesus was held in high honor because of uh, what the apostles were doing. And Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There is something wonderful and something precious about the name of Jesus, which, by the way, is why blasphemy and the use of Jesus as a swear word is so hellish. It's so of the devil. It's so wrong. Because Jesus is... His name is higher than any other. His name is wonderful. His name... It really... The name of Jesus should be very, very precious to us. In His office, what we're saying there is just in terms of what He did. In Acts 5 and verse 31, it says this, God exalted Him to His own right hand as Prince and Savior that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. God exalted Jesus as Prince and Savior. Now, I'm going to ask a question here, and uh, this is open for anyone, but especially for the children, because you're probably brainier and will get this, but this is a really hard question, so if you don't get it, don't worry. If anyone knows, what did you, we know that Jesus came from heaven. We know that He lived on earth. We know that He went back to heaven. Okay, here's the question. It's not a trick question. What did Jesus have in heaven the second time that he didn't have in heaven the first time. Okay? So he came from heaven, came to earth, and then after he died, he ascended to heaven. When he went back into heaven, he had something, maybe several things, that he didn't have the first time. Joss. Joss, you go for it. Death. He'd experienced death. He hadn't done that before. That's true. And he'd conquered death. And he hadn't done that before. What was that? No, he didn't have any sin with him. He didn't take, but he bore sin, so that's true. And the, and, and the clue there is in the name. You see, he's, he came as prince and savior. Before, Jesus wasn't the savior. Afterwards, he was. Joss? Is it what? Marks on his body. Absolutely. Do you know what marks? Whip marks? Possibly, yes. I hadn't thought about that. I need to think about that one, okay? What else? Callum? The holes in his hands, that's right. Eden, is that, what you, is that what you were going to say? The holes in his hands, that's right. Because in the book of Revelation, it says there's a lamb in the midst of the throne looking as if it had been slain. And I think it's clear. I mean, Jesus, when in his resurrected body, he said to Thomas, look at my hands. Feel the holes in my hands. So, what we have in heaven is Jesus in a human body and a human body that has been marred and scarred because of our sin. And he had that and he comes back as a triumphant Savior. And that's really what we are going to look at. Now, here's the incredible thing. We praise Jesus because we are very limited, and when we come to understand something of His glory, it just blows our minds away. But this is the extraordinary thing. The angels praise Jesus because when He's the Lamb at the center of the throne, it blows their minds away as well. It is astonishing. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power. So, we're going to look at 
four aspects, very, very easy. Uh, the children can easily remember this, and so I would expect the adults to as well. Um, you don't necessarily have to remember all the verses, but let's go to the first one. Okay, Jesus is exalted because he's alive. Okay, now, I would almost suggest that you repeat this to yourself every single day, and certainly every Sunday, the reason we celebrate on a Sunday. Well, the Jews used to celebrate. What day? Let me again ask the children, because you guys are helping me a lot. What day did the Jews used to celebrate on? Sabbath, which was? Saturday. Saturday, yeah. It was Saturday. Now, the early Christians were, were Jews, and they would have celebrated on the, the Jewish Sabbath. They changed it to the Sunday. Why? Why did they change it to the Sunday? Why did God change the day to Sunday? Why do we not meet on Saturday? Josh, you're, you're going to have to come up here and be permanent. Go ahead. What happened on Sunday? Yeah, look to your dad. Yeah, he'll help you. What happened the first day of the week? Think, okay, Emma Jane. No, that was the Saturday. What about the Sunday? What's special about the Sunday? Callum. Jesus rose from the dead. It's the most extraordinary thing. And the whole day of worship was changed to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. So every single Sunday, we are gathering to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead as though it happened today. That's really, really, really important. And that's what we're saying, that Jesus is alive. Now, we're going to look at some verses to see what that means. Because there are people who say, yeah, Jesus is alive, and it's just his spirit, and Jesus is alive, so what, and so on. And I could have taken, I had about 30 verses, and I cut them down to five. So let's just go through these five. First of all, Acts chapter 2, verse 24 to 27. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost, and this is what he says. He talks about Jesus being nailed to the cross. And then Acts 2, verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. When we say that Jesus is alive, we mean this, that a normal human being who dies, the minute you die, your body starts to decay. Within hours, certainly within a couple of days, your body begins to smell because it's decaying, because nothing is working. Jesus' body did not decay. Jesus' body was preserved. Jesus' body was raised from the dead. His body. There are some people who say that they are Christians, and they say, well, I don't really believe in a physical resurrection. It doesn't really matter. It was a spiritual resurrection. It matters. It is of the very heart of the gospel that God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And someone who says it's just a spiritual resurrection, it doesn't matter, is somebody who does not understand who God is or what the gospel is. It is, it is absolutely central. I am not going to worship a God who lied about his son being raised from the dead. And it would be very hard to worship a God who didn't have the power to raise his son from the dead, to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. His body was raised from the dead. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Let's go to that because that is another aspect of the resurrection that exalts Christ. First of all, we're saying Christ is exalted because his body was raised. 
Romans 1 verse 4 says this, talking about Jesus, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Sometimes people say, resurrection. So what? Maybe that's the so what is this? People don't rise from the dead. It's very interesting. You'll get um, people who debate and who discuss things, and they'll say, yes, in those days, people believed that people rise from the dead, but now we're more intelligent and we're more scientific and we've got better knowledge. No. You'll find when Paul went and spoke at uh, the Areopagus in uh, Rome and Athens that he was getting on fine until he spoke about Jesus raising people from the dead or being raised from the dead. And then people scoffed and laughed at him. And only a handful of people continued to listen to him. Because people say, bodies don't rise from the dead. People, that's exactly the point. They don't rise from the dead. It would take something absolutely extraordinary for that to happen. And that's the point of what we're saying about the gospel. It's something that's so extraordinary. And so extraordinary that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that He is the Son of God. How do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because God raised Him from the dead. Romans 8 and verse 34, and as I say, there are loads and loads of these, but we're just taking a selection of them. The New Testament is full of this. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is alive, and He's praying for His people. He is the one who satisfies divine justice. Someone condemns us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, um, Ephesians 1 verse 20. If someone finds that actually in the Pew Bible, could you let me know and I'll just show you the number for others who don't have it. 1,170. Ephesians 1 verse 17. 73. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm deaf in one ear, Alan, and the other one's not working too well either. 1,173. Ephesians 1, verse 20. In fact, let me go from verse 19. It talks about that we may know His incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is a great thing, too, that the fact that Jesus is alive and is exalted in His being alive is in, him, in the power that He Himself can give. Now, it's incredible if you meet someone who's got power to, to, to heal a, a blister or um, Izzy's example of praying and uh, being healed of a wasting and so on. Why is that not impossible? Because we worship the one who was raised from the dead. And if he chooses to heal in different ways, then it's not impossible. It's not something that's illogical or it doesn't make any sense. It just makes a huge amount of sense. He's alive and he's powerful. And the last one, 1 Corinthians 15, um, that's just a great one in terms of our own death. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25. Let me just read this. 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Who destroyed death? Who defeated death? Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee, the absolute guarantee of our own resurrection. Go back in that chapter to verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So, Christ is exalted because He's alive. And supposing we had nothing else, that would be enough to exalt Him and to praise Him and to wonder and to marvel. But we've got three more. Let's go on to the next one. He's ascended. He's ascended. He ascended up on high. Now, the ascension, again, some people have a difficulty with. We don't know exactly where Jesus ascended to. I don't personally believe there's a place in outer space that you could say heaven, like a planet that is heaven. I think it probably is uh, another dimension, if you like. But go to Luke 24 and verse 50. You'll see what Jesus did. When He led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted up His hands and blessed them. While He was blessing them, He left them and and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Incidentally, what I love about this particular Luke's citation of this is just simply that Jesus left them, and He didn't leave them with houses and cars and lots of material possessions. He left them with His blessing. He'd left them before. He left them when when He died, and they were devastated. This time He leaves them. They're not devastated. They know that He's gone to prepare a place for them. They know that He reigns. They know that all that He said will come true. They know that the Holy Spirit is coming because He told them to go and wait at Jerusalem for the Spirit. You wait in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. He's ascended. He's alive. Psalm 68, we sang about that. He has ascended as a conqueror. Jesus entered heaven as a conqueror, as the one who is mighty to save. And in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, we are told that in His ascension, He gave the gift of His Holy Spirit. You see, when a, a king came to the throne, we, we don't have, well, I suppose we, we may have this here, but in that culture, when a king came to the throne, when the king was being anointed, you really wanted to be around him. Because supposing this was a palace, and supposing I was a king, which I'm not, or let's, no, no, let's, show, let's make Sean the king. Sean was about to be anoint, anointed king, which would really please the rest of his family. Sean would be in such a good mood and would have such power that he could give away, and the tradition was that at your coronation, you would give away gifts. So you're going to be made king, so you would say, here, have this piece of land, or marry my daughter, or not in your case, Sean, but uh, we're a wee bit further on. And it, it, was, it was great to be around when the king was entering into his kingdom, when the king was being exalted, when the king was on his throne. Well, when Jesus entered into heaven, he gave gifts to men. That's what we sang in Psalm 68. And those gifts come from the Holy Spirit. They are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are the gift of the Spirit you will not be alone. It's good for me, he said to his disciples, that I go away. It's good for you that I go away, because I will send another comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. 
And that's an, a, a great part of the exaltation of Christ. Christ is exalted, and He sends His Holy Spirit. And that's the most incredible gift that we could ever receive. He's alive. He's ascended. Let's go on to the third one. He rules. Now, in the catechism question, it says he, He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And we need to unpack that just a little bit. What does that mean, sitting at the right hand? Well, the right hand was important because, again, going back to the illustration of the king, going back to King Sean, if he said to his brother, Callum, I want you to sit on my left hand, that's not a good idea. What that means is, Callum, I I don't like you too much. If he says, Callum, sit on my right hand, it means you're my number one person. And Christ sitting on the right hand of God the Father it's just is saying that Christ is exalted. Christ is in the place of honor in heaven. Ephesians uh, 1 verse 20, where it says, uh, He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. John chapter 17 and verse 5. Again, there are so many verses in the New Testament about the glory of Christ in, in heaven. I'm only just taking a few of them. John 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus sits in glory. Back again to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus ascended to fill the whole universe. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and become mature, attaining to the full measure, uh, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Jesus rules. He rules. He is king. And as king, he is not a distant king. As king, he sends his spirit. As king, he has his army. As king, he has his rulers. As king, he has his, his, his laws and his principles. As king, he has his people. We worship and serve King Jesus. He reigns. Now, again, that is very, very important because there are some Christians who think, well, Jesus doesn't reign just now. He's up in heaven, and one day He's going to come back, and then He's going to reign. No, He reigns now. He's sovereign in everything, even in the most difficult things. Because sometimes there are people who want to say, what's happened to me is so horrible, I can't believe God would allow it, and I can't believe God would be in it, and therefore, I just want to say that Jesus is, is not king over that. The trouble with that is this. It is even more horrible to believe that there are things that can happen that Jesus has no control over that Jesus is not sovereign over. He ascended so that He might fill the whole universe. He rules. Colossians chapter 3, if you're in Ephesians, uh, you just go over Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And you see what's being saying there is we were spiritually dead, we've spiritually been raised, we've been given new birth, we've been raised with Christ, we are to set our heart on Christ in glory, and we are to set our minds on Christ in glory. 
Because what's He gone to do? He's gone to prepare a place for us. Sometimes you're in a situation where you, you, you get the feeling, I'm only here temporary. You know, if... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a good example without naming names. It's difficult. Um, if you were here, and this is completely hypothetical, so don't start thinking, who's this? Um, if you were here and your uh, husband was away in Sweden or something and was preparing a beautiful house for you, and you happen to be living in a flat in a pretty dumpy area of Dundee at one level, and no, none of your family are here, you are longing to be with your husband, send you pictures of the house. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you, you're here. You've got to be here. Maybe you've got work to do. Maybe you're studying or something like that. But you know that it's only temporary. You're longing to be somewhere else. You can accept that in two ways. One is you can just give up on here and just say, oh, I can't be bothered and I wish I was away. But another is that because you've got the promise of something better to come, you can enjoy what you have all the more. And because Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, we can enjoy what we have on this earth all the more. I love this world. I love um, so many things. Uh, the, the more I go on, the more you appreciate things like your family, like food. Um, I was thinking that today. It was really strange. I enjoyed the worship this morning and we had, I think, I can't remember what it was, feta cheese or something as a starter. And I nicked a bit before everyone came through, so that's my confession. And I tried it, and I thought, hmm, this is just like worship. And that, honestly, that was the thought that went through my head. This is just like worship. It's just wonderful. It tastes great. And then I thought, no, that's a bit silly, isn't it? And actually, it's not. It's not silly, because God gives us so much in this life. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. But even the very best, even the most ecstatic thing that you could enjoy, we, now this sounds really snobby for those of you who know, and it sounds as though I'm being paid far too much, but it was a very special occasion. Myself and Annabelle went to the Pete Inn, and if you're going to propose to someone, take them to the Pete Inn. It's worth it. They'll never say no. It was just absolutely fabulous. Just going, oh, that's just gorgeous, uh, the food anyway, and then you think the people are gorgeous, and then, then you're in. But uh, it's, that is, you know, it's some of the nicest food I've, I've ever tasted, or you get really, I, I love coffee, I'm like Mark Ellis here, if you want good coffee, go to Mark's, uh, I like really, really good coffee, and you just, it's just got a nice taste to it, and really good music, and so on, but if you could imagine the most delicious, tastiest food that you could ever have. You go to that place in Spain, what's it, El Bulio or something, that you've got to wait for ages to get in, and you have 57 courses or something, and, and it's meant to be just an out-of-this-world experience. But you can imagine the most, that experience, the most delicious food, the most astonishing piece of music, the most wonderful relationship that you could ever have. It's not a patch on what Jesus is preparing for His people. So, He rules. We exalt Him because He, he rules. Um, and then Hebrews 1. Let's turn to Hebrews 1 because the, the two verses in Hebrews are just so important. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Christ sits on the throne. What is He doing? The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of, of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful world, word. What holds together the universe? Why doesn't it fall apart? 
It's a great argument that we use, we discuss in apologetics, we talk about all the constants in the universe and how amazing it is. We never quite, though, state it exactly because it's only amazing because Christ not only puts in the information, but He holds it all together. If Christ was to withdraw from the universe, it would all fall apart. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. What does He do? After He had provided purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, the rest of Hebrews is really saying, this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus is doing, this is why He's so great, this is why He is exalted. And I'm only going to mention uh, on in Hebrews 9, verse 24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in the presence of God. Christ rules, Christ intercedes, Christ prays, and He does it for us. I like it when people pray for me. I think it's wonderful. I think it's good that we pray for each other. But never ever forget that when all our prayers appear so puny and pathetic as they often are, there is someone who prays for us who has not just access to the throne, He sits on the throne. Jesus rules. Then the last one is this. I'll go on to the next one, Stephen, please. He returns. Hebrews 9, 28 says this, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. I used to be really, really scared about this teaching. Fiona Ellis, how old are you? You're eight. Okay. When I was your age, I was really scared about this. And I'll tell you why. Because I just had this kind of image of Jesus returning. I was going to be in real trouble. Or I was brought up in a Christian brethren home where we believe quite strongly in the rapture. And if you don't know what that is, we'll tell you later. It's, but um, it was the, mainly the idea that Jesus would come, that all the Christians would disappear, and everyone else would just be left. And it was a whole kind of idea of you know, you're driving your car. And I really, be- I believe this. I believe that my dad would be driving his car, and if the rapture occurred, I'd be left in the back seat with no driver. And I knew my brothers and sisters wouldn't get to make it, but my mom and dad were probably going to go, and we'd all crash, and it would just be awful. Um, and I used to think that. And I remember one time, and I think I've told some of you this before, I kind of was backed off from Christianity a lot, but for some reason, that particular fear remained. And I went to visit a friend who was a Christian and a very committed Christian and believed all that as well. And I went into his house, and downstairs we'd normally play table tennis. He had a table tennis table and so on. And I went downstairs, and there was the table tennis bat lying on the table and the ball lying on the floor and another bat. I thought, that's strange. I went into the kitchen. There was a pot boiling, and it was boiling over. That's strange. I went into the TV, into the, into the living room, and there was the TV on, and there was no one in the house. And the thought went through my head, oh, I need to become a Christian very quickly. I think the rapture's happened, and I've been left behind. There was a song by Larry Norman, Life was filled with guns and war, and everything got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. And I knew that song. I could see Chris. He knows that song. He's old enough to know that song, too. And, and I just thought, the, the words kept going in my head, I wish we'd all been ready. And I sat down, and I thought, calm yourself, be sensible. Of course they haven't been raptured. Or what about the pot? What about the thing? No, 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 calm yourself. And eventually they came back. They'd been out walking the dog or something and just left things. I don't know how it happened. But it it scared me and it made me think uh, a little bit. But that's a shame actually when people kind of get caught up in aspects of Christ's return, which are 
at best speculative. And uh, honestly, sometimes, at times, it can be ridiculous. And what you do is you then get Christians who react against that, and in some churches, you never hear anything said about the return of Jesus, which is crazy, because that's what we are looking for. He is going to return to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Has He not already brought salvation? Yes. But salvation in the Bible is something that's past, present, and future, and the future salvation is this. He's going to, to save us from the illness, the sickness, the effects of sin, and our own personal sin. And He's going to save all His people in that way. In uh, 1 Thessalonians puts it very strongly, and if, if, again, if someone can find that, Thessalonians is always one of those books that I go, I know where it should be, but I can never just quite… What's that? Double one, double eight. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, and verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Christ will return. And I can't remember who it was. It may have been C.S. Lewis, but don't quote me on that, who said, when Christ returns, that's it. The curtain is closed. The show is over. Everything's finished. Christ will return. Acts 17, verse 31 Paul says he's going to come to judge the world. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So, those four things, Jesus is exalted because he's alive, because his body does not decay, because he is eternal life. Jesus is exalted because he's ascended to heaven as the triumphant Savior. Jesus is exalted because he reigns, because he rules, because he, is, he has ascended to fill the whole universe. Jesus is exalted because He's going to return, not as the humble baby in the manger, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And at that point, every, every eye will see Him, every knee will bow. There will be. There will be no, no atheists. There'll be nobody. People say, well, when I meet Jesus, I'm going to ask Him this. No, you're not. When Jesus returns, and if you are not one of His people, you are going to call for the rocks to fall upon you. It's not as though you and Jesus are equal. It's not as though He has to answer to you. He is the glorious, exalted Christ. So, Christ is exalted. Christ is glorified. Christ intercedes for us. Christ will return. What are we to do? We are to exalt Christ. Now, we can't make Him better, but we exalt Him by saying who He is. We are to exalt His truths. You see, people say, oh, I, I, I like, you know, um, students come to uh, university and they say, I'm going to go around churches and I'm going to choose a church, and that's quite a sensible thing to do. But it's the criteria on which people choose that really bothers me. 
Because sometimes people will say, oh, I like the kind of worship in that church, or they were nice people, or whatever. No. The first question I want to ask you about any church, whatever the denomination, and I don't care to who's the denomination, whatever the denomination is, is Christ exalted in this church? Is the pastor exalted? Are the people exalted? Is Christ exalted? And that means, first of all, Christ must be taught. And He must be taught in the fullness of the Scriptures. All the Scriptures speak of Jesus. And if you've got someone who's given you a can version of Christianity, given you an ABCD of Christianity, and you might think, well, that's true. It's, you know, we get the ABCD of the gospel and so on. But is that Christ exalting? I mean, I've just gone through a whole rake of verses, and there are tiny a tiny bit of what we could have had a series on each of these points, and we still would have been scraping the surface of the depths of what Scripture says about the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet, you get Christians, and in Christian churches, and they are evangelical churches, and yeah, Jesus is Lord, and yes, Jesus will praise Him, and so on and so on, but it tends not to be about Jesus. It tends to be about me. It tends to be about you. It tends to be about what we want, and you need to look for a church where Christ is exalted. And that needs, that's done through His truth, but not just through telling His truth, but through seeking to live by it. Because there are plenty of people who go, oh yeah, that's, that's great, teaching the catechism, that's great. But what about living the Word of God? What about actually bowing the knee before a sovereign and risen Lord? What about coming to worship on the Lord's day because you are celebrating that Jesus is alive, not because, well, you're going to do it because it's good for you, or you'll meet people, or whatever. You're, you're, you're exultant in the exalted Christ. We are to exalt Christ because it is about Jesus. You know, the more I go on, the more I, I become increasingly tired with the distinctives of denominations, and in particular, I, get fed, I actually get fed up with people who say they're not denominational because they just have their own non-denominational denomination. But the way that, that people, Christians, focus on secondary issues and get worked up and wound up about secondary issues, but so few of us get worked up and wound up about Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to have people worshiping here with us who are from a Pentecostal, Church of Scotland, Baptist background. And the more I go on, the more I just don't care. It, it's there's a, a great saying from uh, the, one of the founders of the Free Church, Thomas Chalmers, who said, who cares for the free church compared with the Christian good of Scotland? Well, actually, we often find in our churches we do. Whatever, you can substitute free church for Baptist or whatever you want. We've got to be uniting and we have got to be seeking those who will exalt and glorify Christ. And I'm a doubtful that that's really what we're about. And I, I, I'm challenging myself with this, and I'm asking to challenge you with it as well. I loved it this morning. Someone came out and said, isn't, I loved it, David. They said, isn't Jesus a wonderful Savior? See, that's the best thing a preacher could ever hear. It's nice to hear. Loved it, David great congregation. Loved it, David. You're a wonderful preacher. You can say that to me if you want. I won't care. And it's not, I'm not going to cry if you say that to me. But I'll tell you this. 
there's nothing to compare with someone going, wow, isn't Jesus a wonderful Savior? If you are thinking about church, what you're going to do in church, if you're thinking about your role in the wider church and everything like that, just ask the Lord to place you in a position where you can exalt Christ in your work, in your church, in your home, and in your life, because that's why we exist. Let's just take the last one. This is a quote, I hope, yep, from Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, and I love this, and I've just quoted this verbatim, and we'll finish with this. He said, let us exalt. Our response to this is, we should exalt Christ in our hearts. We're not just saying, Christ is great. We are feeling Christ is great. We need to feel that Christ is great. Let us believe, adore, and love Him. We cannot lift Him up higher in heaven, but we may in our hearts. Let us exalt Him in our lips. Let us praise Him. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our tongues must be the organs in those temples. Let us exalt Him in our lives by living holy lives. This is true religion when men strive to live blameless lives. In the Bible, it talks about, uh, in Ephesians, Paul says, live a life that's worthy of the Lord. Not all the doxologies and prayers in the world so exalt Christ as a holy life. It makes Christ renowned and lifts Him up indeed when His followers walk worthy of Him. Now, of course, the converse of that is true. If you as a Christian walk unworthily of Jesus, Christ is trampled in the ground. That's what it says in Hebrews about those who have trampled the blood of the Son of God underfoot. Christ is trampled. And we don't want that. You see, your motivation for not sinning is not that you won't go to hell because Christ has saved you. Your motivation for not sinning is that you want Jesus to be glorified. You want people to look at you and to see Jesus. And that's such an awesome and such a a frightening and such a dreadful responsibility if it wasn't for the fact that He ascended and He sent His Holy Spirit. And the great thing about the Holy Spirit is that He gives you the gift of being able to live as a Christian. All the other gifts are secondary compared with that. And by the way, that's what real worship is. Worship is in our life when we exalt Christ, and worship when we gather here is when we're exalting Christ. We're going to sing uh, in a moment, and I want you to think about the words that you're singing. We get into the trap of singing words and using tunes to make us feel good, to make us feel as though we are praising. I'm wanting to suggest this to you, that your heart should overflow with wonder and praise and love at the glory of Jesus Christ because of what He has done and who He is, and you will then find that you are really worshiping, and your praise will take off, and it will be astonishing and astounding. May God grant that that would be the case. Let's pray. Bless Your Word to us, O Lord. We worship You, Lord Jesus, as the risen and exalted Savior, the One who ascended up on high, the one who is glorified in heaven, the one who shall return, the one who intercedes for us, the one who ever lives to make intercession for his people. We bless you, O Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, let's.